Let's get it. Wednesday, June 26, 2019. Born the Battle, brought to you by the Department of Veterans Affairs. I am your host, Marine Corps veteran Tanner Iskra. It's a pretty good week outside of podcast land. Uh, I went out and attended a, over the weekend a small arms firing school conducted by the Civilian Marksmanship Program. Now, I haven't shot a course of fire since I got out, so um, I decided to get out, try something new, meet some new people, and reacquaint myself with a with a good old friend, the, the service rifle there. Um, in addition to a lot of veterans being there, there were also a lot of active duty. Uh, I found out that it's a way for active duty to get their distinguished shooter badges. Man, I wish I knew about that when I was in. Uh, now, they couldn't get all their points, but that is a way for them to get some points for their for their shooting badges. So I went out with a veteran nonprofit, Camp Valor Outdoors. I took the basic class and I shot a regional CMP match. And I think I could say I didn't do too shabby. Didn't come in the top 10%, but I came in, you know, probably the top 15. Um, just missed those points. Uh, Camp Valor, uh, they're doing some good things for the veteran community. And we're going to talk with some of their staff in some upcoming episodes. Um, as of this release, we released this on, on Wednesday, yesterday, June 25th was the 69th anniversary of the beginning of the Korean War. A war which resulted in over 33,000 U.S. battle deaths, over 2,800 non-battle deaths, and seven, and as the DOD reported, over 17,500 other deaths. Uh, this not counting many that came home forever changed by wartime experiences. Um, if you know of a veteran that served in that war or have a family member that served uh, pick up the phone and see how they're doing today. You know, uh, I take this from experience. Uh, a lot of the elderly, they really don't care about what you call about as long as you call. Personally, my grandfather, he likes to talk about the weather a lot. So, uh, you know, give him a call. Talk about the weather. Um, last week's episode had a really great response. You know, I'm always blown away when I reach a new li- listenership milestone. And again, thank you for your, and we, and we did that again last week. Thank you for your feedback on the episodes of blog at blogs.va.gov. Um, a couple things. If you want to enjoy the benefit of the VA home loan, sign up and join the service. It's a veteran's benefit. Um, and this is from my own VA loan experience. Yes, straight cash, larger down payments, different loan types with faster processes, of course, they're going to be at higher rates, are more attractive offers for a lot of sellers. In the end, it is the seller who gets to decide who to accept the offer from. I personally was in a very hot market during my first home purchase. My advice, be patient. Even if you get turned down one or two times, know that there's always another home that will be available if you're in the, if you're in the hunt. And don't be pressured in taking another loan that will be detrimental to your family's plan for the sake of just being impatient. The VA home loan is designed to give you a fair shot at getting a home at face value, even if you don't have any money down. Uh, what they won't do is fund you for a fixer-upper. No, they will not give you an extra 50K in an escrow to take a 100K home and turn it into a 150K loan. It's not designed for you to build equity on a home um, or anything like that. Um, if you and a bank want to risk your own money and credit for stuff like that, that's on you. Uh Again, the VA home loan is a fair opportunity to get a home at market value as is. And at no money down, which a lot of loans won't even won't even entertain that. Uh, speaking of credit, you need to keep your credit score up to use this benefit. 
the VA just backs your loan, meaning if you default on your loan, the VA pays a large portion of the bill to the bank. It makes your loan attractive to a lot of banks. Even still, your credit score will determine if you even get approved. So pay. Your, I can't stress this enough. Pay your bills and pay them on time. If you're hearing what I'm saying, but you have no idea what I'm talking about, go listen to the last episode and then go look at the corresponding blog at blogs.va.gov. And if you have any questions in that blog, it tells you exactly how to call the regional loan center and, and ask those follow on questions. Now, a couple of weeks ago, we covered one of the news releases pertaining to the Mission Act. There have actually been five or six within the past couple months. Uh, there were so many, I, I just wasn't keeping track. With, I wasn't keeping track of which one is which. Uh, we didn't cover all of them on the show. However, they are all on blogs.va.gov. We've also done a Facebook Live and did another blog on blogs.va.gov that addressed the most popular questions from that Facebook Live. Now, I could read all of the five or six news releases, but I can tell you, I know, you know, that would be extremely long and extremely boring. So this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to put them on this episode blog. I'm going to put the in the uh, additional notes, you know, the additional links. And I'm going to encourage you to watch the Facebook Live from 30 May on our Facebook. And if you still have questions, you can go to Mission Act, M-I-S-S-I-O-N, Act, A-C-T, dot V-A dot gov. And if you still have more questions, there's a number you can call, VA311 at 1-844-698-2311. Look, I may not have all the answers, but I'm going to do my best to tell you all the resources that I know. And and as I find them out, I'm going to let you know even more. Um, I'm also going to work towards building another resource uh, for a future benefits breakdown. I'm going to work, and, and it seems like you guys like those a lot, veteran and Dr. Jennifer McDonald back on the show. Her previous episode is in the archives, and we're going to work on getting her back on the show because she is the lead for the Mission Act. And hopefully, with her help, we can do a benefits breakdown on the Mission Act in a future episode. Um, we covered a lot of news releases these past couple of weeks. Um, there are two from this week. This one says, for immediate release, VA healthcare facilities to go smoke-free. Uh, VHA modifies policies to increase quality of care to veterans. As part of the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs commitment to provide excellent health care for veterans, the department will implement a new policy restricting smoking by patients, visitors, volunteers, contractors, and vendors at its health care facilities by October. Although VA has historically permitted smoking in designated areas, there is a growing evidence that smoking and exposure to secondhand and thirdhand smoke creates significant medical risks and risks to safety and direct patient care that are inconsistent with medical requirements and limitations. Accordingly, VA's Veterans Health Administration has collaborated with key stakeholders to update and recertify the policy to be consistent with the department's commitment to veterans and the community. A recent VA survey, re a recent VA survey revealed that approximately 85% of responding facility leadership support smoke-free campuses. And this new policy for patients, visitors, volunteers, contractors, and vendors allows VA to ensure the health and well-being of VA staff, patients, and the public. Got a quote or two. And then it says, VA's new smoke-free policy applies to cigarettes, cigars, pipes, and any combustion of tobacco and non-federal drug administration-approved electronic nicotine delivery systems. 
including but not limited to electronic or e-cigarettes, vape pens, or e-cigars. To learn more about health risks associated with smoking, visit the Surgeon General's website at www.hhs.gov forward slash Surgeon General forward slash reports hyphen and hyphen publications forward slash tobacco forward slash index HTML or just go to smokefree.gov. Wish I just would have read that earlier. VHA has extensive resources and programs to assist veterans in their smoke-free journey. They can be found at www.mentalhealth.va.gov forward slash quit hyphen tobacco forward slash. And there's a period there. Don't know if you need the period, but it's there. For additional information about the policy, visit va.gov forward slash VHA publications forward slash view publication dot ASP. There's a question mark there. So question mark P-U-B underscore I-D equal sign. There's an equal sign in this one. 8242. Man, that's a lot. All right. And our second one is pretty cool. It says for immediate release, VA to reduce rates for service members group life insurance. On July 1, the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs will reduce the service members' group life insurance monthly premium rates from $0.07 cents per $1,000 to $0.06 cents per $1,000 of insurance, along with the family SGLI program, premium rates for spousal coverage at all age brackets. It's kind of cool. The SGLI is a program that provides low-cost term life insurance coverage to eligible service members, while FSGLI provides group term life insurance coverage to the spouses and dependent children of service members insured under the SGLI. And then there's a, a then there's a quote by our secretary, and then it says the SGLI premium decrease impacts 2.1 million active duty service members, reservists, and National Guard members, while the FSGLI premium decreases impact nearly 1 million of those members who have coverage for their spouses. So it means a four dollar uh, decrease a month in premiums for the service member with the maximum of four hundred thousand dollars of SGLI coverage. Service members with spouses covered under FSGLI will see an additional average monthly premium rate decrease ranging from 10 to 32 percent, depending on the age and the amount of coverage for the spouse. Uh, reservist drilling for retirement points rather than pay are not receiving pay for other reasons will be billed by their service department for the reduced premium rates beginning July 2019. For more information, visit www.benefits.va.gov forward slash insurance for the tables of the new premium rates. So you never really hear about an insurance or any bill for that matter going down. So so that's some good news for our active duty out there. All right. For this episode, we're going to go back to the World War II weekend in Reading, Pennsylvania. I still had some interviews to to air, but due to the GI Bill's 75th anniversary and it being the 150th episode, I thought that was a good time to release the benefits breakdown. However, in doing so, it broke up our World War II weekend coverage. But, you know, just like Grover Cleveland's presidential terms, yeah, I'm going there. Um, we're going to do another episode because these stories are worth going back to. So the first veteran you're going to hear was a Sherman tank gun loader with a 3rd Armored Division during World War II. He's a Purple Heart recipient. He saw Normandy, Northern France, the Rhineland campaigns, and he was the first armored unit, one of the first armored tanks to cross the Siegfried Line. He is Army veteran and Reverend Walter Stitt. Enjoy. Most of my time, and well, all of my time being shot at uh, was in a tank. But I was wounded. I went to England. And uh, when I got out of the hospital, they put me on limited service, and they sent me to the Air Force. Uh, 
So I went to the 95th Bomb Group. So I want to start there with my uh, career as in the 95th Bomb Group. Uh, at that time, I had a shoulder that would come out of joint if I raised my hand over my head. So I wasn't fit for much of anything. And I didn't have any Air Force skills. So uh, that we tried a few things like loading bombs, which didn't work. So uh, I went back and talked with the major and he asked me if I could work in the PX. And I said, I think I can handle that. So I started to work in the PX and uh, I did that until the war was over in Europe. And when the war was over there, uh, the planes came back and the crews were coming back. Uh, lieutenant came in one day and said, Walter, I'm putting you in charge of the enlisted men's beer hall. And I said, I can handle that. And I have assured the people when I've talked before that I always tested every case keg of beer that came in there to make sure it was the finest quality for, for these servicemen. I did that uh, until August, uh, and then they sent me back home. I should tell you, I went, I went overseas and came back home both on the Queen Elizabeth. Uh, and the Queen Elizabeth went uh, back and forth by itself because it was so fast. They could outrun the subs. Uh, every 15 minutes, they changed directions just to see if that would help. Uh, on the way over, I slept on a bunk. They were, they were stacked about four, uh, sometimes more than that, I suppose. But you couldn't sit up in your bunk. You could roll in, but you couldn't sit up. I mean, it was that close because you had 17,000 people on there. Uh, on the way over, uh, they put me on KP. Why, I don't know. I was such a, a good soldier, but anyway... Uh, I got a big KP badge, and the, they had the boat divided into red, white, and blue sections, and you had to stay in your section. But if you had the KP badge, you could walk all over the boat. So a friend of mine, uh, also a KP, I said, let's keep our badges. So after we got off duty, we kept the badge, and we walked around opening doors and uh, found a bathroom that had a tub and hot water. So ran back, got my towel, got my soap, ran up, turned the water on I think I don't know how we decided who was first but I was first and I turned on the hot water jumped in that tub oh this is wonderful and but the soap wouldn't lather and suddenly I smell oh no it's salt water so there I am soaking wet in salt water and I tell you it's kind of sticky and messy but anyway I survived the trip uh, when I got to England, they sent me to a little village. Uh, I landed in England on D-Day uh, when everybody else was going over to France uh, for the invasion. Uh, I, the Queen Elizabeth went up to the Firth of Clyde and, that, and we disembarked then the next day. Uh, the story goes that on D-Day, when all those people left, when all those machines and tanks and everything like that left to go to France, that that whole island came up afoot anyway they sent me to a lovely little english village called wells in somerset county and uh i encourage you to go there if you ever go to england it's a lovely little place they got this gorgeous cathedral had a clock in there that still had its wooden works and the vicar told us he said you know he said that clock is older than your whole country and he was right you know it was the over well over 200 years old Anyway, uh, stayed there about three weeks, went to Portsmouth, was there about a week, and then put on a ship to go to France. Uh, 
When we got to France, uh, the weather was bad. We couldn't land, so for three days, we just sat there and bobbed up and down in the waves. Now, you know what that would do to some people. Uh, I should have been the Navy because I never got seasick. But after uh, a few days, the weather got a little bit better, and so we climbed down over the nets and into the boat and uh, went into shore. Uh, the boat... The first thing went down this first dip in the waves and all I could see was muddy water around. I thought, oh boy, if this thing sinks, I'm in real trouble. Then it would go up in the air and a screw would come out and back down to the next one. But anyway, uh, when I got into land, uh, we walked, we landed at Omaha Beach. Now this is, of course, uh, almost six weeks later. Uh, went in land about a mile, dug a, they told us dig a foxhole, which I did. Uh, that night, uh, a German plane came over, bomber, which they said it did every night. Uh, they called it Bed Check Charlie. And you hear this thing coming, but, 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 but. And they would turn up all these spotlights, and, and their ack ack would go up in there, and it was a, like a 4th of July. And that first night, while I'm standing there, I hear things going zip, zip. Uh, looked over to this kid, and I said, What was that? And he said, You remember that old expression about what goes up must come down? I said, yeah, I get the picture. So I was back in the foxhole. Uh, that night, the German would just come over, and as soon as he thought he was over where the troops were, he dropped his bomb. It, the, the bomb he dropped it was about 200 yards from me, killed 20 people. Just, you know, he. Uh, I've maintained over the years that if they hadn't turned on those spotlights and shot all that ACAC up in the air, that the German would have flown right on by us and on out to sea somewhere. But, you know, right away, he knew where we were because he could see all these lights that were turned on trying to find him. But that's just a side story. Uh, after a few weeks of falling along behind the main troops, you could hear the guns going off the whole time. I mean, we were that close. Then the, uh, the first sergeant came and uh, identified me as a tank gunner and said he had a place for me. And I... Uh, it was about another week or so, and he came down and said, okay, you're going to come with me, and took me up and introduced me to my new crew. My new crew, <laughs> well, at least three sheets in the wind, if not four sheets in the wind, because they'd gotten a hold of some French Calvados. French Calvados, they tell me, is made out of apples, and they keep freezing it till there's nothing left but alcohol. It's 180 proof. You could burn it in a cigarette lighter. Uh, and it made a lovely drink. You fill up the canteen cup about two-thirds full, put in the extract or the uh, concentrate from your K-rations, and then put the Calvados in on top of that. Sweet, lovely drink. Powerful. Uh, side, I got to tell you a side one on that. Uh, we were over there on a trip many years later, and uh, our tour director, who had been a lieutenant during the war, uh, got back on the bus and he said, these people gave me a, a jar, a, a bottle of Calvados. And he said, but I'm not going to drink it myself. He said, you people got to help me. He said, I got some cups here and everybody gets some Calvados. So I'm the ornery type. And I told my wife when she got her little cup, I said, the only way to do this is to toss it straight down. So she said, okay, toss it straight down. She's going, uh, uh, uh. tears going down her cheeks. 
It's a good drink. Oh, yes. If you get French Calvados, you got a real drink. A friend of mine from Chicago went in a French bar, and they give it in little small glasses, and they sip it. Uh, he said he's from Chicago, and he wants a drink. And so they gave him a big shot of Calvados, and he did that, tossed it off. So he's grabbing on the bar and hanging on, tears going down his face, gasping for air. It's a wonderful drink. Uh, anyway, then my, they didn't have a tank immediately ready, so my crew and I uh, were in a half track, falling along behind the main line. And we, uh, and one day we pulled up uh, and stopped on an over uh, railroad overpass. And while I'm sitting there looking, I look down the road, and this German comes out of the woods, up over the railroad, back into the woods. So I swung a 30 caliber machine gun around, load it and got ready and the next one came out up like this and boy i cut down on him he right on into the woods and i'm waiting pretty soon another german comes out up over the tracks in the woods and me shooting all the time it took me about 50 or 60 years to finally figure out what was going on that they were about 200 yards away from me and while i'm shooting this way i'm shooting right at them but by the time the bullets got there they moved over here so i probably didn't even scare them Later on that same day, in the evening, somebody started yelling, there's a German tank coming down the road. And if you listen real quiet, you hear that clank, 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 clank. And so the my tank commander, future tank commander, said, come on, Walter, said, let's get the bazooka off the kitchen truck. So we grabbed the bazooka off the kitchen truck, put a one round in, and I held another round. He said, now here's what we'll do, Walter. He said, we'll run down the road towards the tank, get up on the bank, and when he gets up by us, he said, I'll fire the first one. You load the second one in and fire that one. He said, then you and I'll take off for Paris and claim we got lost in the dark. And I thought he thought, I like the way he thought. But uh, the German didn't want to fight at night either. So he stopped. We went back, put the kitchen truck away. The next day, well, that night we went on down the road and... I have a thing about officers sometimes, but he said when he came to a roadblock, said, just pull off the field. So he pulled off in the field. The next morning, I'm the last one on guard duty, and I'm hearing tanks, and I start screaming. And sure enough, we'd gotten in front of the army, our army tanks. They're coming down there and go right on by us. So we were there, finished our breakfast, and uh, the lieutenant's trying to figure out what else to do. And uh, somebody said, there's some Germans coming. And we look, and here comes a column of German, there were a few, uh, they weren't armored. They were trucks and, and vehicles like that. And uh, my tank commander jumps up on this half track with a 50 caliber machine gun, starts going, ta -ta 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 -ta, and shot right through the kitchen truck. And uh, <laughs> you see Americans dive for the ground. Uh, Benny, and why didn't you set that truck on fire? I don't know, because every fish shell was a tracer, and it's going through that canvas top. But anyway, that day we captured 17 Germans. Uh, and here we are, we're way in the back. We're not supposed to be capturing Germans. Uh, a few days later, then, I got in a tank and um, uh, moved right up at the front. The uh, We started off... Uh, I remember riding along and the sign said 40 miles, 40 kilometers to Paris, 30 kilometers to Paris, 20 kilometers to Paris, 30 kilometers to Paris, 40 kilometers to Paris, going right around. Uh, then we uh, went towards Mons, Belgium, and we drove all night and they would come up with a 
gas cans, we'd fill up the gas and off we'd go again. And if you know the story of Mons, uh, when the Germans woke up in the morning, it was too late. The first uh, uh, Big Red One, the first infantry division, the third armor division, and a couple of other troops had the whole town surrounded. A couple of Germans made a, an attempt to get out, but there was no way to get out. They captured something like 39,000 uh, Germans in that right there in Mons, a couple of generals. Uh, everybody laughed because it, the German officers thought they were officers and should be treated like officers. And we said, you're out in the field with the rest of them. When I left, when we left there, I looked at my periscope. Now the gunner that I was in that tank has a periscope that'll go up and down and around this way. And that's how you see the world. People asked me after the war, well, were you in such and such a town? I said, I have no idea. All I had was this little periscope so that I could turn up and down and around this way. But anyway, after Mons and we went to Liège, liberated Liège, went to Way, Namur, and then on towards Germany. And there was a town right on the border. Half of the town was in Germany and half the town was in Belgium. It's called Eupen, E-U-P-E-N, Eupen. And the guy from Eupen came to my house one day to visit. He said, when the American 3rd Armored Division came through Eupen, he said, our side of the town, he said, everybody celebrated, you know, we've been liberated. He said, the other side of the town are throwing bed sheets out the window to surrender. So we went on and I was with a group called Task Force Love Lady, consisted of B Company, which were light tanks, D and E Company, E Company was the one I was in, which were medium tanks. And we were the first armored group and the first armored division to go through the Siegfried line. Uh, it wasn't terribly hard that day as, as battles go. Uh, once we got in, they did like uh, they did on D-Day. You know, once you get past the, the Germans' initial defense, then we just spread out and just kept shoving everything we could in there as fast as we could. So we did that there, and some group were going towards Aachen. Uh, the group I was with, we had eight tanks uh, for two platoons, four in each platoon. My platoon went around this way and up through this German town. It had houses on each side of the road and then a big open field. And over here was a slag pile. Now, if you're familiar with coal mining, you know that everything comes out of the coal mine is in coal. So they pile up the slag and it, after a while it uh, catches on fire and stinks. Nobody here lives around coal mines, okay. Uh, Anyway, the Germans were dug in there, and we didn't know that. So these four tanks that went up through the field, the, there was target practice. They just boom, 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 like that, and got all four of them. Uh, so my tank being in the away, hidden behind these houses, really, uh, we turned around and came back, got out of town, took up another stand someplace else. A few days later, we got into a real knockdown uh, battle, uh, and... Uh, we, all of a sudden, this lieutenant came up, told my tank commander to get out, that he was taking over. Now, he had already lost two tanks that day, and this was his third one. He gets in, and he just was paralyzed, and he's just standing there looking. And they're calling over the radio and telling him, Lieutenant, move your tank, they're shooting at you. Move your tank, they're shooting at you. And finally, he reaches down and gets his mic and says, Driver, back up. And just he said that bang and killed him and killed the gunner and uh, and they're stuck together 
dead like this and the loader has to go under the gun and up past you know the other two people who are all supposed to get out well i couldn't get out but at my peripheral vision i saw daylight and i dove down into the driver's because the driver was out and over the side i went now i told you i had a shoulder that came out of joint so when i went over the tank i caught myself shoulder goes out of joint uh, pull it back in start to run because there's a light tank there and i wanted to get a bandage to put on my leg that was bleeding and uh i tripped over a barbed wire fence that we'd run over and i didn't realize it was there and down i went shoulder out of joint oh, put that back in ran over the light tank and yelled at him and said i need a bandage and they said come up and get it because they weren't real anxious to get shot at either so a hand came out this way with a bandage i climbed up and about that time like that four shots right down the side of that tank about a foot from me and here was this german over there with a german submachine gun uh, we called them burp guns by the sound anyway it was a distance for him and they weren't very accurate anyway and he was probably nervous so he fortunately missed me but i spotted him when i looked around real quick and i yelled at the tank commander in his light tank and he put that 37 around and boom that was the end of that one uh, I started looking for a place to hide, and I found a foxhole that was half dug. And I jumped into that foxhole, and I thought, now, if I lay on my back and shrapnel gets me, it'll get my heart. So if I lay on my stomach and it hits my back, it'll cut my spine, so I'll lay on my side. So I'm laying on my side, and all of a sudden, oh, this burning sensation on my rear end. I thought, oh, man, I've been hit again. And I reached back, it was a piece of hot metal. And about that time, here I am trying to, uh, there's a cartoon, Willie and Joey know that, uh, and he's saying, I can't get any lower in the ground because of my buttons. Well, that's, that was me. And, uh, but about that time, here comes a medic. You know, he's got his steel helmet with that red cross on there, standing straight up. Now, you, you have to admire those people and the kind of nerve they had and the kind of dedication to what they were doing, trying to save lives. Because here I am trying to hide and he's standing up and walks up by me and said, can you walk? And I said, yes, said, ambulance right up the road there. So I went through these bushes and he got in the ambulance, went back. Uh, they give you this tetanus shot. Oh man, that hurts as bad as anything else. Um, they uh, did what they had to do with my legs uh, said go over there in a the tent, take it easy. I went over, laid down in a cot, took it easy. The next morning, went back up, and the first sergeant said, Walter, I'm sorry to have to do this to you, but he said, you know how bad they need tanks? I said, yes. He said, okay, here's your tank commander, uh, and uh, said, go back and bring up the tank. So he, I got a driver, and I went back, picked up the tank, and we got in, and we're right back up at the front line the next day, within 24 hours. Uh, didn't have any serious battles for a while. Uh, this was in a town called Stolberg. And my favorite story of Stolberg is I got back there about 50 years later, and the mayor talked to us. And the mayor said he was eight years old when the Americans came through. And he said he'd been told, along with everybody else, that these Americans were terrible. They were monsters. Boy, it was going to be bad if the Americans came through there. And so he said, all of a sudden, here comes these guys, and they're smiling and laughing. And they gave him chewing gum and candy. Eight years old, he said, they gave him a pack of cigarettes. <laughs> so anyway, uh, we stayed in Solberg until uh, uh, the 1st of November. And... Uh, we waited a whole month to get all the supplies we needed, ammunition, more tanks, more crews, all that sort of thing. I need to cut her down.
shorten it up. Okay. Uh, so anyway, our, my next adventure was we took off, went down through a minefield, and um, we'd been told by a German officer who defected that if you ran over the wires, there were no mines in there. But if you ran through these paths, that's where the mines were. Well, my tank commander lined us up on the path, and I, I said, we're supposed to go over the wire. And he screamed at me, I'm the tank commander. Okay, and so we ran uh, through the path, and you know the rest of the story there, when all the tracks and the wheels off of one side of the tank when we hit that mine, we jumped out, we're in, and I um, went back through the field to get back out of the way. And uh, my tank commander and I were just kind of ambling back, and I heard zip, zip, zip. I said, Lieutenant or, or Sergeant, they're shooting at us. And uh, my favorite story is that um, I was always sorry there was nobody there with a stopwatch because I set the world's record for a 100 yard dash and a pair of army boots. <laughs> got back, got another tank. And, um, and caught up with the rest of the 3rd Armored Division. Uh, we were put in reserve, and I uh, was enjoying life. We pulled our tank up to, to a German house where we were going to get warm. We could, if we had anything, we could cook on the stove. They had a stove. Uh, and that's where we were when the bulge came along. Uh, we got orders right away to move to a certain coordinate, and we moved there. Um, do I have any time at all? Two minutes? Okay. So anyway, during the bulge, um, we fought in a Belgian town called Trepont, Three Bridges, and we fought German SS troopers. I don't know whether you knew this or not, but the SS troopers and others were, not, were told not to take prisoners because they didn't have the food to feed them and they didn't have the time to take care of them, so shoot them. So that's what we were up against. And these are the same people that committed the atrocities at Malmody and some down where we were, killed all the women in this one village, bayoneted some of them, if you can imagine. Anyway, uh, we, after Christmas, we started uh, down to meet up with Patton uh, to relieve the uh, 101st Airborne uh, who had their troubles. Uh, my tank, we were going through a little village called uh, uh, Freitcher, although the French call it Fratur. Anyway, in Freitcher, I shot a shot into a Belgian house. Years later, when I went back there, I didn't tell them I was the guy that shot, that, shot through that house. Uh, we moved along. Uh, I just pulled up over a little wall, and a German stood up with the Panzerfaust, fired a sh the first shot, missed. Got some of the infantry that were with us. Second shot hit right on top of my tank, killed my tank commander, and I got strapped on my head. Um, when I tell my friends that I last wound, I got strapped on my head, they all nod and say, yes, that explains a lot. <laughs> but anyway, that was the, the ultimate reason that I went back through the medical uh, facilities all the way back to England. And when I got back to England, they decided I was useless for anything else. We'll send him to the Air Corps. And so that's my story. My grandfather served in World War II. Spending time with him were the best memories of my life. I became a physician at VA because of my grandfather, so I can help others like him. I can't imagine working with better doctors or a more dedicated staff. I'm fulfilling my life's mission with the help of my team and thanks to these veterans. I'm proud to be a doctor at VA.
am proud to honor my grandfather every day. Search VA Careers to find out more. Our next veteran sat down with me during World War II weekend. When I asked for the interview, with when I asked his family for an interview, he when he heard, he got right in his motorized scooter and he made his way right to my table. Now, he's in his mid-90s. But when you talked about his career and you looked into his eyes, you saw the enthusiasm of a 20-year-old. He was a bell diver, combat swimmer, and a Navy frogman. The Navy frogmen were the forerunners to the Navy SEALs. His mission was underwater demolition. And he did that mission in Guam, the Philippines, and in Japan. Later in his career, he was also a frogman instructor. And he's got a hilarious story about that. So without further ado, I give to you Navy veteran Victor Morelli. World War II veteran, Korea. Yep, Korea. Last of the frogmen. Second World War, Korea. Right up to 1955. You got out in 1955. You're known as one of the last of the frogmen. Yep. What was a frogman? Frogman, we had to go uh, swimming a mile with uh, 14 pounds of dynamite on our back. And uh, go to, to the beach in the Philippines and in in Guam in the midway yeah. and put the uh, uh, dynamite on the obstructions and then after we were set we bring the uh, lines out to the end and uh, uh, hook them all up and then had 20 minutes to get to the pickup line before they blew up. So you and were they, underwater demolitions? Yeah, underwater demolition. They blew it up. So you were uh, a precursor to the SEAL teams that are yeah. currently the SEAL teams. How did frogmen end up becoming uh, SEALs? Well, they started with that frogmen, then they pushed us up to, to uh, frogmen. From there, underwater demolition, the frogmen and the Korea War, and from the Korea War to the Vietnam War, we became Navy SEALs. Gotcha. The Navy SEALs today that they show in these movies, not like the, the real thing. Oh, yeah, how so? No, we, we, they, we, went, we weren't allowed to be married, couldn't have no steady girlfriend. All male was scented, and we could, I didn't get married until I was 27. So if you didn't, uh, if you weren't issued a wife, you weren't allowed to have a wife? It was something. So yeah. um, after the Navy, after the, your years as a frogman, what was, uh, what was the next step for you? When you, what, what made you get out? You retired, obviously, from the Navy. Oh, uh, I, I, I got hurt too much. You I, got hurt too much? Yeah, I lost my hearing. I lost my sight of one eye. Oh, wow. And uh, I had to bend eight times. You had to bend eight times? Yeah. And that's not from coming, that's from coming up too quickly? Yeah. Wow. But, well, I, the, the deepest I went was... Uh, 306, 383 feet. Oh my gosh. And they, uh, uh, 
It, it took 14 hours to come up. For, it took 14 hours to come up. Yeah, he had to decompress on the way up. Yep, so you wouldn't get the bends. Yeah. Had and, to bend eight times. Oh, my gosh. And how, uh, how long did they keep you in decompression after that? I took 14 hours to come up. Yeah. And then I landed up in a, in a decompression chamber four months. Four months. Now, is that like a, is that like a, how big is a decompression chamber? Is like. Oh, it's a big, big chamber. Yeah? Big chamber. You got uh, all windows all around. And they, uh, they, 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 they got to all wired up and check you every hour. Make sure that, that all the nitrogen is coming out of your body. All the nitrogen comes out of your body. Yeah, because the nitrogen, the, the uh, well, that, that step to getting, uh, you um, get the, the nitrogen bubbles in your joints. Gotcha. And you get that nitrogen out of the races. That's why my hands, my hands and my legs are all crippled. Yeah. Mm. So you got hurt too much and they had to let you out of the Navy. I lasted as long as I could. Yeah. But I had a good life. I loved it. Yeah. And a lot of people say, where do you see down there? See everything. I know that. I, I keep telling these people that they don't, they watch these movies you know, where, where the divers are walking, standing up. They're not, they're not standing up, they're laying down. Yeah. Because if you're standing up, the current and the tide drop for you back, on your back to shake it up. That's so all the, old all the old divers, not many are standing anymore. Yeah. Mm. Now, see these, these, uh, uh, divers and the, and the uh, uh, sponge divers. Yeah. They only go about 100, 110 feet. You call them sponge divers. Yeah. And they, 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 don't, uh, they don't know what the pressure is. Yeah, yeah. In fact, uh, I look for the sadists on it. Oh, I'll say whatever you want. I can cut it out if I need to. Uh, because they, the sponge guy wanted to be a diver. Yeah. And he wanted to be a diver, so I, I qualify him. Yeah. So he, uh, we took him into the base, the base pool, and dropped him down a 20-foot uh, pool. And he dropped him in a 20-foot pool, he passed out. In 20 feet? Yeah, 20 feet. Nah, he was, so he wasn't cut out. So we brought him up, brought him down again three times, he passed out. So the third time I brought him up and I held him in dress and I looked at him and I said, did you, did you get checked by the doctor? And he said, yeah. I said, you sure? And he said, yes. I said, well, come on, you got to go see the doctor. So I went back to sick bay with him and asked the doctor if he checked him and the doctor said, yes. I said, check him again, will you? So the doctor looked at him and he says, oh, no, I don't believe it. I said, why? Did you find a mistake? He said, yeah. So he looked at the, the fellow that wanted to be a diver and he said, what happened? He said, do you have the bumps? And the boy said, yes, I had the bumps when I was a kid. He said, you lost your testicles. <laughs> he says, and that's the most important thing in your body. Really? Yes. He said, that, 
your testicles absorb all the pressure in your body. Really? That's why he says if you notice, if you catch, if you squeeze your testicles, they hurt like hell. Uh huh. So he says that's the most, most important thing in your body, in a the, the male. Yeah, in a male, because then you can and recognize he, pressure. He said that's why. So he wasn't recognizing pressure at all. He, he said that's why you can't be a diver. You might, you might be able to be a sponge diver, but you can't do the pressure. Well, I know for a fact that the every every uh, uh, twenty-two feet is fourteen and seven tenths from pounds per square inch crystal on your body. Yeah. So you get down 22 feet, it's twice as that. Yeah. So you have to keep room. That's why you gotta keep filling your dress up. It's hard to it's hard to even breathe. Even even the pressure. Wow. Victor, is there anything else that you'd like to add that I haven't asked or you think it's important to share about your service or about being a frogman or about being a seal? No, if anybody wants to be a frogman, that you can do it, do it. That's what we need, more Navy frogmen. Even, even the Marines are being frogmen. It's do what we're doing. So let's fight them all. father served in World War II. Spending time with him were the best memories of my life. And when he needed it, he turned to VA for treatment. I became a physician at VA because of my grandfather, so I can help others like him. Now, this is my moment to honor my country, my family, and their legacy of integrity. It means everything to me. I can't imagine working with better doctors or a more dedicated staff. Together, we're building real friendships with veterans and their families, starting with world-class care. Every day, we're helping veterans with wounds both seen and unseen, from our groundbreaking research in PTSD to our advances in physical therapy. I'm fulfilling my life's mission with the help of my team and thanks to these veterans. I'm proud to be a doctor at VA and proud to honor my grandfather every day. Search VA Careers to find out more. In the not too distant future, we're not going to be able to have personal access to these keepers of this part of history. So a big thank you uh, to Brenda, Jim, Clarence, all the World War II reenactors that gave us access. And a big thank you to the Mid-Atlantic Air Museum for giving us access to the event and to these heroes. We look forward to going back next year and getting more for you. Um, I do have a couple more interviews. One is an Air Force veteran who had uh, the most decorated airman in history as his CEO, as his CO, found out nothing has ever been written on him. And then when he retired, he set out to write and publish a book on his CO. I may still release that in a future episode, not immediately, but definitely in a future episode. And then I have a couple more interviews from that weekend, uh, not veterans, but extremely interesting nonetheless when it comes to that time in our history. One was a Rosie Riveter helping with the war effort, and another was a gentleman who was forced into the Hitler Youth Program as a child. They're fascinating stories. 
Um, and if you want to hear those, let me know either via email at podcast at va.gov or leave a comment on this episode's blog at blogs.va.gov. You know, and when you get to the website, just type in Born the Battle World War II Weekend in the search. Um, if the demand is there, or leave a review on on uh, on iTunes or on Stitcher or or somewhere there. If the demand is there, I'll release those two interviews as a bonus in the future. This week's Born the Battle Veteran of the Week is Dale Quick. Though it's still a source of contention on the Korean Peninsula, it's often called the Forgotten War. Hundreds of people recently came out and attended the funeral of Dale Quick, who was an Army and Korean War veteran who passed away without any known surviving family members. He was honored this last Monday, uh, the day before the Korean War anniversary. Roper and Sons Funeral Home in Lincoln, Nebraska, urged veteran groups and members of the community to attend the funeral for Quick. This is what Roper's Sons put in the obituary. Dale Quick of Lincoln, Nebraska, passed away on June 13th, 2019. Born November 20th, 1927 in Leonardsville, Kansas, to George and Genevieve Quick. He was a retired maintenance engineer for the U.S. Postal Service. He was a U.S. Army and Korean War veteran and a member of the St. Paul United Methodist Church. There are no known survivors. By all accounts, Dale led a simple life. However, he was honorably discharged from the U.S. Army after faithfully serving his country for nearly seven years, from 1947 to 55. We are appealing to any and all veterans, veterans clubs and organizations, and our community to attend Dale's service to honor an individual who so selflessly served our country. Dale's wife, Caroline, passed away in 1987 at the age of 42, and he has lived in Lancaster Rehabilitation Center for the last 17 years. Then they gave the, the funeral service uh, time and dates. That request quickly circulated on social media and was shared by a lot of prominent figures, either on social media or in the media. Uh, this prompted hundreds to pay their respects for Quick at his funeral this past Monday. Among those who attended the funeral were approximately 50 bikers and flag carriers that led his casket, along with Senator Ben Sass and of Nebraska and Nebraska Governor Pete Ricketts. Army veteran Dale Quick, we honor his service. You know, there's been a lot of uh, stories like this circulating on social media. And it's really nice to see our community supporting those individuals that have no support. Um, you know, I, I think about that and, and I take a lot of pride in, as being part of that community that goes out, that would go out and do something like that for their brothers and sisters. Um, and it also constantly reminds me of ways, how can I help people while they're still around? And I hope it does the same for you. That's it for this week's episode. And as always, you can follow the VA on social media, DEPT Vet Affairs, U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, uh, Instagram, uh, Rally Point. Uh, no matter the social media, you can always find us with that blue check mark. Thank you again for listening and we will see you next week.